I want to return this morning in our studies to Revelation chapter 7. We notice there a heavenly scene. We talked about it last time in terms of it being a glimpse of heaven. One thing we notice right away is that there's a great multitude there that no man could number. And they are described as having come out of great tribulation. Now let me just hasten to add, verse 14 does not have the definite article with it. It doesn't say they've come forth from the great tribulation. That's how many people want to read it. But this is referring to all believers. And all believers suffer in this life great tribulation. Remember how Jesus promised that to the disciples in John chapter 15. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now the writer of this book, John the Divine, John the Beloved, also the writer of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, knew all about tribulation. In fact, at this very time when he wrote this book, he was, on account of his testimony for the Lord, exiled on an island. It's called the Isle of Patmos. And while he was there, he could well have been forced to labor in the island's quarries. I know that some secular writers have averred that John, on one occasion, was actually boiled in oil, but survived that torture. He knew what tribulation was. And those that he was writing to also knew all about tribulation because they were currently being persecuted for their faith in a savage way by the brutal anti-Christian policies of the emperor Domitian, who lived between AD 90 and 95. So it would have been a great encouragement for them to know that the folks who are in heaven, among whom would be many of their friends, no doubt, who had passed away, are those who had come out of great tribulation. But we're now safe with the Lord. They were not going to sorrow anymore. They were not going to suffer anymore. There was going to be no more death, no more pain, no more crying. Now, in a general sense, we can say that salvation is a coming out of great tribulation. And for those who would have been reading what John had to say here, it would have put steel in their veins. But this message of hope encourages Christians in every age, including our own. Troubles and trials are the lot of the Christian in a fallen world. We read about Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14, strengthening the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and telling them that they must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. And again, we see when Paul wrote to Timothy, he warned him about this. He told him that he was going to suffer and he should endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1 verse 3. He also said, all who will live godly, it means those who desire to live godly, 
in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So there's no escape from it. You know, this nonsense about your best life now, that's what it is, nonsense. The idea that everything's hunky-dory and everything's rosy in the garden when you come to Christ is a myth. You will find as a believer that your worst troubles began when you came to Christ. But thank God the worst things you can ever experience are in this life, not in the next. It has been said, the best that the ungodly will ever endure, the best that the ungodly will ever enjoy, rather, is in this life. But the worst that the believer will endure is also in this life. Because the best is yet to be, and the end is not yet. We must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. No Christian, I mean no Christian, is free from tribulation in this life. The Puritans used to say, we're all subject to losses and crosses. Now, there are times when we bring tribulation upon ourselves by our own foolishness. Sometimes tribulation comes as part of the mystery of God's providence. And we don't understand why the Lord allows certain things to happen to us, but they do. But also the devil hates the people of God. He goeth about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He gives us trouble because we are the Lord's. This is part of the tribulation that is being referred to here. And I would suggest to you that if you are enjoying a totally trial-free life in this world, a life that's free of all stress and all difficulty... You're not following Christ. Jesus said, and it's what he says that counts, if the world hateth you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, Jesus said, they will persecute you also. You'll read that in John chapter 15 from verses 18 to 20. But there's none of this in heaven. There is literally no tribulation or trouble in heaven. There, all our trials, all our troubles will be o'er. And we thank God for that. Now John was privileged to see a number of visions while he was exiled on that island. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. So the Lord opened heaven to him, that he might see certain things. And what he saw in the Spirit included the throne of God. And the one who sat upon that throne. And then when you come to chapter 5, he speaks about the one who sat on the throne, the Lamb of God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also sees along with him those who were worshipping him, including the angels. But then in chapter 7, as we noted last Lord's Day, 
He had a vision of the redeemed people of God in glory. Sometimes people will ask the question, they've even asked me the question, what is heaven like? And it's very hard to answer that question. Because there's a paucity of information. There's, if you might call it, a lack of information as far as detailed information about heaven. However, we do get what I called last Lord's Day a glimpse of heaven. We're allowed to see something of what heaven is like. Who will be there? What they're going to be doing there? And more importantly, perhaps still, how they ever came to be there in the first place. This is all spoken about in Revelation chapter 7. And when we think about that, the words of verses 14 and 15 really come into their own. It says in verse 13, to get the connection, One of the elders said to me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? Who are these people in these white robes? Where did they come from? Verse 14, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Let me just say right off the bat, all men are not going to be in heaven. I sometimes hear people speak in the context of someone's passing and saying things like, well, we're all going to be there. We're all going to be there eventually with him or with her. There's this general belief that all people, it seems, are going to at last make it to heaven. And you hear this frequently mentioned by those who would describe themselves as ministers. They preach everybody into heaven. Everybody. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter about anything related to those people. Every last one of them are buried in sure and certain hope of the resurrection unto life eternal. How do I know that? Because I've been to enough funerals and heard it. I've heard men speak of the deceased. And I thought to myself, well, how could you possibly know that? Because you didn't even know the person. Because sometimes a minister is chosen to do a funeral who had no connection with the person whatsoever. They didn't know them. They never met them. But because they needed a minister to do the funeral, he was chosen and he preaches that person into heaven. He's absolutely sure that they're now with God and all of us are going to join him or her one day. You know what that is? That's something that belongs to a book of fairy tales. When I was a little boy, we used to read books like The Little Gingerbread Man. And I actually thought it was real. And then I realized, no, it's, it's a fairy tale. And various other things that I believed as a child I came to realize were not true. 
They're fairy tales. You know the Bible talks about those who preach fables. That's what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. People who turn their ears away from the truth and they listen to fables. Fairy tales. One of those fairy tales is that every last person on this earth is going to heaven one day. The Lord Jesus didn't teach that. The apostles didn't teach it either. So it's very important that we understand this, that all men are not going to be in heaven. So who is going to be in heaven? Those who are described in this way, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're the ones who are going to be in heaven. Why? Because they've been cleansed. They've been washed. That's the word that's used there. They've washed their robes. Spiritually, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So simply put, if you want to be in heaven when you pass away, you need to be one of those that's referred to here. You need to make sure that you have washed your robes and have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. Didn't we sing earlier, are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I'm so thankful that in all of my sadness, I can think about the fact that June Hamilton was washed in the blood of the Lamb. When she left this earth a month ago, she went straight to be with Christ. And yes, I would preach her into heaven. Not because she's my wife, but because she had the experience of the new birth. She made her calling and election sure, and she testified of the fact that she was going to be with Christ, which is far better. So let's think about this portion of Scripture and what it tells us about the redeemed in heaven. Because that's the subject here, the redeemed who are in heaven. Three things. First of all, you'll see in this passage a significant expression is used. What is that significant expression? It is, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood. The cleansing, purifying power of the blood of the Lamb is emphasized here. The significance of the expression, the blood of the Lamb, can be explained by looking at the entire Scripture. For example, in the Bible, you'll see that the blood of the Lamb speaks to us in a typical sense. You see this title, and I made this clear in the former message, the Lamb, see it there in verse 14, the title right at the end of the verse, the Lamb. It's used about 21 times in the book of Revelation, and it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that title, that actual term, the Lamb, was really important in Old Testament ritual because the lamb was an animal of sacrifice. And I could prove this by referring to many different scriptures. How the blood of the lamb was vital in the sacrifices that God commanded to Israel. We see this particularly 
in Exodus chapter 12 in relation to their deliverance from Egypt at the Passover. We talk about the Passover lamb. But you will notice in that passage in Exodus chapter 12, if you were to turn there, how important the blood was. Let me just illustrate this for you. Exodus chapter 12. We look at verse number 7 to begin with. And it's speaking here about the congregation of Israel. And they shall take of the blood, that's the blood of the Lamb, and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Now go to verse 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token or a sign, if you like, upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. You notice here the protecting power of the blood. Then you go to verse 21. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. The Lord himself would be the protector of his people. But notice the place and the part that's played by the blood now this was all very typical it was typical of the greater sacrifice which was to come that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 where he simply says Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us therefore everything you read about the Passover in Exodus 12 applies to Jesus it's typical of him. And that's why in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God. The sacrifice. The blood of the Lamb in the Old Testament that was shed in sacrifice, and it had to be shed, was a picture, it was a type of what would happen later on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because of this that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus walking along, he pointed to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Those Jewish hearers would know what he was talking about. The Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice. His blood is going to be shed for sin. So this, this great title here, or this great description, the blood of the Lamb, it has significance in the Bible in a typical sense, but it also had significance in a prophetic sense. Because you see, not only did the types and the ceremonies in Israel under the law speak of Christ and point to Christ the Lamb, but the prophecies that were given actually spoke about the shedding of the blood. Two in particular. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Both of these are 
outstanding examples in the Old Testament of the sufferings of Christ being referred to in advance. And when I have the opportunity to speak with Jewish friends or if I get an opportunity to witness to a Jewish person, I always encourage them to read two portions of the Old Testament. Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 53. And then I like to pose the question, who is this referring to? Who is this? Look at Psalm 22 verse 16. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's Christ on the cross, is it not? Look at the first verse. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The words that Jesus uttered on the cross. Referring to Psalm 22. Obviously making that connection. And you can see from this passage, the sufferings of our Lord are in view. Look at verse 18 of Psalm 22. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Do you think that the Roman soldiers did that because they knew what Psalm 22 said and they wanted to fulfill it? They were godless men. They worshipped another deity. False gods. But there they are under the cross fulfilling the prophecies of the Scripture. They part my garments among them. They divvy out the garments of Jesus, each one, and then they cast lots for his inner vesture because they didn't want to rip it in pieces. They wanted to keep it whole. So one of them won the prize. This is, by, this is not by accident. This is God's word. It speaks about the shedding of the blood. But go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, from verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Who's it talking about? Well, isn't it interesting that in Acts chapter 8, we read about a man, a nobleman from Ethiopia, who is traveling home from Jerusalem in his chariot, and Philip goes alongside that chariot led by the Holy Spirit, and the man is reading out loud, and the place where he's reading is Isaiah 53. And as he's reading, he comes across this part about him being led as a lamb to the slaughter. And he says to Philip, Who's he talking about? Is he speaking about himself or some other man? And Philip opened the scripture, began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. I know I've told this story before. It bears repetition in this context. This is a true story. There was a lady in England who was a Christian. She worked as an au pair for an elderly Jewess. 
She wanted to witness to that Jewish lady about Christ, but the Jewish lady was very, very adamant that she did not want this woman reading from the New Testament. So the lady agreed that she would just read to her from the Old Testament. And she read from Isaiah 53. And the Jewish lady stopped her and she said, I told you I didn't want you reading from the New Testament. She said, it's not the New Testament. It's the book of Isaiah. And he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. The blood of the Lamb is most certainly referred to in a prophetic sense. But the blood of the Lamb was significant as an expression in a literal sense. Because you see, the blood was actually shed for sinners at Calvary's cross. The blood was not just only a metaphor, but the actual blood that flowed through the veins of the Lord Jesus Christ was shed upon the cross. They pierced his hands and his feet. They hammered that crown of thorns into his scalp and the blood came down. After he was dead, a soldier put a spear right into his side and out came blood and water. And you think about the blood that was shed by Jesus at the cross. It was shed for sinners. And if you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, there are mentions of his blood. Even Judas had to say, I betrayed the innocent blood. It speaks of him in Gethsemane's garden and how that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. His life was laid down in death. The blood was actually shed, and the blood had to be shed. The life of the flesh, Leviticus tells us, is in the blood, and it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. The blood of the Lamb was literally shed at the Passover. They literally took a plant called hyssop, and they dipped it into the basin full of blood, and they struck it on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. And we remember how David in Psalm 51 said, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Is he not referring to the blood? The blood of Jesus is powerful blood because it has atoned for the sins of all those who will believe. Hebrews 9.22 says that almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. There's no salvation without the shedding of the blood. When Peter talked about the atonement in 1 Peter chapter 1, he said that we're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And he's referring to both the outward and the inward purity of the animal. See, every animal that was chosen, every lamb that was chosen for sacrifice in the Old Testament, it had to be pure inside and out. It couldn't have any mark or blemish on the outside of its body. Not a bone of it could be broken. 
but also it couldn't have any disease on the inside. And that's what it means when it says that the Lord Jesus was without blemish and without spot. No sin in his life outwardly. No sin in him. Pure, spotless and holy Saviour. And don't we read in 1 John 1 verse 7, The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. How do you get rid of your sins? The blood of Jesus washes away our sins. And that brings me to the second point here very quickly, which is, not only is there here a significant expression, the blood of the Lamb, but there's a special experience referred to. It tells us about these people. These are they that have done something. What have they done? Well, they've come out of great tribulation, but they have done something. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes. These people have had an experience of washing, of cleansing through the blood. Have you had that experience? Now we noted last time when we were preaching a number of things about these people. Uh, We talked about the number of these people. A multitude that no man could number. And how that they were from all nations and kindreds and tongues. People from everywhere. You know God has his children all over the world. All different colors, nationalities, cultures. But they're all one in Christ Jesus. That's the common denominator for them all. They trust in him as their saviour. And it's wonderful to know that there's people out of every nation that are going to be in glory. But it mentions here not only their calculation, how many there are in their country where they're from, but their clothing. It talks about how they're dressed. They're wearing robes. Verse 9 tells us that they're clothed with white robes. And verse 14 tells us how they came to be white. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You know what that tells me? Their robes weren't always white. Their robes weren't always white. They were needing to be washed. Because you see, they were once dressed in a spiritual sense in wretched clothing. Their clothes were not white. White speaks of purity, spotlessness. But they were actually clothed in filthy garments that had to be washed white. And there are many references to this in the Scripture, things that are very appropriate here. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Some people think they have something to offer God. Well, I'm not too bad, Lord, because I do this and I do that, and I don't do this and I don't do that. I'm actually quite a decent person. And the Lord says, your righteousness is not your bad things. Not the worst things. Your righteousnesses. That's the best that you can come up with. Are as filthy rags. That's how it appears before God. The heavens are not clean in his sight. And like Zechariah tells us of Joshua the high priest. You need to have these garments. These filthy garments removed and replaced with 
clean garments. You and I need to be cleansed. We need to be washed from our sins in the blood of Jesus. And this took place in the experience of these people that are mentioned here. Because not only were they wearing wretched clothing, but they're seen in verse 14 as now being clothed in washed clothing. It's good to have nice clean clothes, isn't it? There's nothing that feels better than taking off filthy old clothes you've been wearing out to the garden or to the yard, whatever you've been doing, and then you come in and you get a shower and you put on clean clothes. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what is that talking about? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's talking about the fact that they've had a spiritual experience that by faith they have looked to the blood of Jesus to wash them. That's what this means. If you go back to Romans chapter 3, it's put this way by the apostle. In verse 23 of Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and come short. That means they're constantly coming short of the glory of God, falling short of his standard, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now look at this. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. That word propitiation needs to be explained. A propitiatory was a place, a mercy seat, where blood was sprinkled. And it was a place where God turned away his wrath from sin. That's why the mercy seat was called the propitiatory. And that is why, incidentally, this word that's translated propitiation in Romans 3.25 is translated in Hebrews chapter 9 as mercy seat. And it's talking about Christ and his sacrifice. Simply put, the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, his propitiation is his turning away of God's anger from our sins. How does that happen? Through faith in his blood. In other words, our dependence upon what Christ has done to cleanse us. Not our dependence upon anything that we have done or or someone else has done. Our total dependence on what Christ has done. This is what it means to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. The blood is applied to your sinful heart by faith. You're trusting in his blood. You're depending upon his blood. You're looking to his blood. You're saying, in that shedding of blood is my salvation. That's why I'm saved, because of that blood that was shed. I'm depending on the blood. On the golden streets of heaven, all men hope to walk someday. But so many are not willing to accept the narrow way. And while others build on good works, or opinions if they may. Hallelujah, I'm depending on the blood. That's the testimony of the true believer. They have clothing that's washed. And because it's washed, it's white. See this? They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That seems strange, does it not? If you dip something in blood, what's it going to be? White? No, it's going to be red. But here's the miracle of grace. 
that they've washed their robes in this blood and their robes are made white. Oh, the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. White clothing is really a typical reference to righteousness or holiness or purity. That is why in Revelation 19, verse number 8, it speaks about the bride of Christ. That's what the church is. Verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Look at it. Clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. There's a reason why the bride wears white. I'm going to make another personal reference. I remember it. 10th of February, 1981. Pretty as a picture. She was wearing all white. Purity. That's what it's talking. That's what it's talking about. Righteousness. The bride of Christ, who is naturally not cleansed white, but is filthy. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Appropriate for a bride. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints, and then tells us that the blessed ones are those that are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, it's an interesting thing to note that in Revelation 19 verse 8, when it uses the, the description, it is clean and white. And if you go back in your Bible to Matthew 17, and you also go to Mark chapter 9, there's a description given of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he was on the mountain, Matthew 17, verse 2, he was transfigured before them. There was a change came about. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment, that's his clothing, was white as the light. It couldn't be any whiter. It was dazzling white. And again, in Mark chapter 9, verse 3, you have the very same thought. Speaking of the same incident, It says, And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. There couldn't have been any whiter. You couldn't find a a washing powder or detergent or a cleansing agent that would ever make them any whiter. They're as white as could be. What am I saying? The robes of God's people are as white as his. This is a reference to imputed righteousness. It's talking about the Lord's perfections, his holiness, his purity, his righteousness. And in our salvation, in our justification, it is reckoned to be ours. So that I don't appear before God dressed in my filthy, sinful garments that I have by nature. But I appear before him as white as Jesus is. I'm accepted in Christ. That's the experience of every true believer, every true Christian. We can say, he has cleansed away my sins. And he has reckoned me to be perfectly righteous. I'm justified. Pardoned from every stain of sin. 
and his righteousness has been imputed to me. It's been reckoned to my account. It's been put against in credit against my name. Oh, to be as white and perfect as he is. That's how God views you today, believer. That's the amazing nature of God's grace. And it brings me to the third thought, which is that you have here in this vision of the redeemed a simple explanation. Someone said the word therefore, when it appears in the Bible, should always cause the question in our minds what is it therefore? Therefore, because of something. And that's what you have in Revelation 7 and verse 15. You tie it in with verse 14. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. That's why they're there. Here's a simple explanation, an answer to the question, why are they there? What are they doing here in heaven? Well, they're here because of this washing, because of this cleansing. They're in heaven because their sins have been washed away in the blood of the Lamb. And friends, that's the only reason for the multitude being there. They're not there because they went to church. They're not there because they were church members. They're not there because they were baptized, whether it be as a child or an adult. They're not there because of confirmation. They're not there because of good works. They're not there for any other reason but that they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Their robes have been made white. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There it is. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's why they're in heaven. Again, that's emphasized in chapter 5 verse 9. Here are the people in heaven. The saints of God. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain. You were killed. And hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now they're singing about this experience. Lord, thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. What's the reason for the multitude being there? Entrance into heaven is through the blood of Jesus. By dependence on that alone. Seems too simple, doesn't it? But the gospel is simple. It's straightforward. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Saviour. Thy work alone, O Saviour, is that which is able to cleanse me from my sin and make me whole. 
Entrance into heaven, I say to you, is through the blood. This is a simple explanation of what is written here. And what a glorious place heaven is. For us, what a glorious place it's going to be. As I emphasized last week, it is a place of service. It's not a place of laziness. It's not a place of laying about, doing nothing. Verse 15 of Revelation 7 makes that clear. They serve him day and night in his temple. Ceaseless service. And those who don't serve God here have no right to think that they're going to go to heaven Because heaven is a place where his servants shall serve him. But not only is it a place of service that people get into by the blood, it's a place of society, fellowship. There's company there. You're not on your own in heaven. This is a great contrast the Bible draws between heaven and hell. The soul in that lost eternity is always viewed as isolated. Do you ever notice that? The rich man in Luke 16, he didn't say, we are tormented in this place. He said, I am tormented in this flame. There's that sense of isolation. Depart from me, you cursed. There's no society in hell. But in heaven, it's a place of great company. Not just of the saints and angels, which is a great privilege in itself but of the best of company, the Lord himself. Tell me, have you any desire for the Lord's companionship here on the earth? Do you like to spend time with the Lord? How are you going to get on in heaven if you don't want the Lord's company here? How are you going to want the Lord's companionship eternally? It's a place of society. It's a place of satisfaction too. Because it tells us about the fact that in in heaven, verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sunlight on them, nor any heat. It's a place of satisfaction. There's no want, there's no lack in heaven, and there's no sadness there. That's a great thought, isn't it? This world is a veil of tears. You may enjoy a lot of happy things in this life, and then something comes along and There's tears and sadness because that's what this world is like. It's a veil of tears, but not heaven. It says in verse 17, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I don't think it means that there are actual tears that he has to wipe away. It's talking about the fact that there are no tears in heaven. They're all gone. Because it's a place of satisfaction and it's a place of sanctuary. Right there it tells us this in verse 16. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. Place of shelter, and sanctuary. Oh, how glorious heaven will be. Will you be there? Are you fully trusting only in the blood of Jesus? You know, there's going to be a multitude there. We read that clearly in the verse number 9. A great multitude which no man could number, but at the same time, many will not be in heaven. 
Because the same book of Revelation in chapter 20 and verse 15 says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There are many who will not be in heaven. The hymn asks the question, Will your soul be ready for the mansions bright and be washed in the blood of the Lamb? This is the question that needs to be posed by every true gospel minister. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? If you're not, you can be. You can be. You can just come by simple faith and put your trust in the finished work of Jesus. I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus. Trusting only thee. Trusting thee for full salvation. Salvation full and free.